Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we celebrate the 10th annual National Canadian Film Day, looking at its origins and talking movies with its co-creators, both of whom have spent decades in the industry, and one of them even had a big role in one of my favorite Canadian movies of all time, 1979's Meatballs. We tackle the sticky problem of food fraud and doctored maple syrup. Turns out Canada's so-called liquid gold is one of the most tampered with food products out there. So how can you fight that? Well, it turns out one solution is to quite literally shine a light on it. But first, it is a huge strike with some big implications. 155,000 federal public servants walked off the job at midnight in a dispute between their union and the government over wages and much more. We dig into the political implications of it all, and we look into how the fight is bringing the issue of how to handle employee demands for flexible and remote work options to the forefront. Start out today on the picket lines right across the country. Yeah, that was, uh, those were public servants on Parliament Hill uh, today. Federal public servants were across the country and off the job on, and on picket lines in front of government buildings uh, from east to west uh, oh, right through the day. About 100,000 of them walked off the job at midnight after the federal government and the Public Service Alliance of Canada failed to come up with a new collective agreement, something that they've been working on for two years. Peace Act's national president, Chris Aylward says the union is calling for higher wages and better working conditions. As of Wednesday, the government had offered a wage hike of 9% over three years for all 155,000 workers in various bargaining units. The union, though, is asking for 13.5% over the same period for 120,000 of its workers and 22.5% over three years for Canada Revenue Agency workers specifically. Here is PSAC's president earlier today. We went in and said we want a 13.5% over three years. The rate of inflation for that same period is 13.8. It's only fair that at least workers in this country keep up with the rate of inflation. And that's PSAC's argument there. Workers don't deserve to take pay cuts, right? I think a lot of employees feel the same way right across the country. All of us, all of us have been watching our salaries essentially be eaten away by the high cost of living and inflation. What does this strike mean for us? Well, 47,000 workers have been deemed essential. They continue to work regular hours, yet the government and the union are warning of service disruptions that will take place right across departments and agencies, everything from passports to immigration and so on. Um, Treasury Board President Mona Fortier told reporters this afternoon that a number of key issues have been resolved at the negotiating table over the past several weeks, and she thinks the government has made a fair offer. We recognize and respect employees' rights to strike, but when a good offer is on the table and there is a genuine commitment to compromise, the focus should be on negotiation. So what's at stake here? How long could this last? What is the impact going to be on a federal government that needs to look fiscally responsible at the same time it needs to show that it's respecting workers' rights? Joining me now is Shachi Curl. She's president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thank you. Thank you. This has been an interesting one because the uh, the government's going to have to walk, as you've pointed out, a very fine line on this one between being seen to be fiscally responsible at the same time also being seen not to not necessarily to take too hard a line on the public service. 
It is a bit of a balancing act for this government. And I mean, we don't want to go straight into politics, but of course, always politics has something to do with this. The Liberal government has managed through three successive elections to put together a coalition of people on the left of center in terms of the political spectrum. And with the confidence and supply agreement that the Trudeau government has entered into with the NDP and Jagmeet Singh, and of course, we we heard and saw Mr. Singh uh, on the picket lines today, this first day of the strike uh, mm-hmm. with the workers This is a situation wherein the government cannot be seen to be coming down too hard, too quickly on people who are asserting their collective bargaining rights and and their legal right to strike. At the same time, however, you know, wave after wave of data that, that we're gleaning from Canadians, and it's not just us. Any polling firm and, frankly, any Canadian who talks to you these days will profess that they are having a harder and harder time meeting cost of living increases. You're dealing with with people who are saying that their mortgage rates are increasing, which means that the amount of time it's going to take them to pay off these costs are longer and longer. Rents are still sky high. We are in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So I'm going to be watching and I don't want to prejudge or pre-speak to any data that we might be in field with right now, hint, hint. I'm going to be watching to see to what extent Canadians look at what's happening with federal public servants and say, look, we're all having a hard time. Good for you for asserting your rights or say, sorry, people, we have not had a raise in the last year. Why should you have one? And we just released some data earlier this week, Ben, that found that nearly half of Canadians said that they had not had a raise any time recently. So these are really the two arguments. And it's going to be very uh, telling, really, to see how public sentiment shakes out. I think it's also, I'll just add this, really important to see uh, the extent to which Canadians have been satisfied with the level of service they have been receiving from the federal government. There's only a handful of things that Canadians really seek from a frontline service perspective from their federal government. It's not like the municipal governments that deal with you know, garbage pickup and clean streets or that type of thing. You know, no, you're right. There's, there aren't a lot of things. And it's been slow of late. There's been a lot of talk about it, right? So Yes, precisely. We're, we're, we're grumpy. We're grumpy about the services we're we've, getting. We've had, we've had a, a, a year of slow passport applications, slow immigration uh, application processing. And when you look at Canadian sentiment around satisfaction with government services, anybody who has tried to access a federal government service in the last six months is more likely to have said that they were dissatisfied with that service than satisfied relative to provincial or municipal government services. Right. And so when the union, I mean, I, I get where PSAC is coming from. It's understandable. I mean, they've been without a contract since 2021. Inflation has been, we know what inflation's been. We know what cost of living has been like. I mean, they're asking for 13.5% over that three-year period, more or less. They're being offered nine. Uh, there's another, or CRA workers are asking for a ton, 22.5%. 
And and I suppose it, it, most of us get paid a wage. In some ways, I suppose we should be supporting uh, PSAC and the union uh, because maybe, just maybe, they'll set a standard for everybody else. But wow, you look at a public sentiment and it doesn't feel like there's a lot of people in PSAC's corner right now. Well, and so that's really interesting because it really speaks to the extent to which Canadians will view what PSAC is doing as sort of the tip of the spear. You go, you fight for us. And then whether we're union members, public sector union members, private sector union members, or not union members at all, how they do will possibly, to some extent, set the tone for how everybody else does. But this could backfire To your point, CRA workers, 20%. Show me a Canadian worker who has, who isn't Galen Weston, who got 20% in the last year. So it's a gamble. It's a real roll of the dice for PSAC. Politically, though, it's a real roll of the dice for the Trudeau government. And this one has the potential to be fraught for all parties. Jagmeet Singh and the NDP uh, have the potential of looking like they're sort of on the wrong side of this negotiation. The Liberal government under Justin Trudeau runs the risk of either being seen to be too soft or too hard, depending on your perspective. And by the way, the Conservatives have some skin in the game around this, because while they may be banging a drum, as we know they are every day on the cost of living crisis and that hashtag just inflation, At the same time, we also know that they are actually attempting to woo union members as part of the working class. And they've made no bones about that. Certainly certainly, uh, non-public sector or at least other uh, other public sector unions. Private sector unions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So they could end up shooting themselves in the foot in this uh, if they don't walk that line very carefully. So this is this is one of those ones, Ben, where you and I get to sit back and watch how people are reacting and what people do and where the pressure is really on the politicians and where we get to sort of take a sip of a beverage and sit back and say, well, isn't this interesting? Shachi Curl is with us, president of the Angus Reid Institute. We're talking about uh, PSAC, day one of the strike today, or at least we're heading towards the end of the first 24 hours and the strike continues. Um, Shachi, do you think this will be a long one because you get the sense that they're not that far apart but um and, and also i mean let's be honest i was watching some of the picket line images today and no one looked too pleased to be there i mean not that anyone ever really is but but it didn't look uh, all that enthusiastic this is such an interesting time in our history ben for the first time remote workers have been told that they have to actually show up in person at a picket line. So this is the first big post-pandemic strike. No, of course they're not happy. They're not happy to be there. They're not happy to be dealing with this. I'm sure everyone would have been happier to have seen this dealt with and settled. The federal government has to be able to demonstrate that they are listening not only to the constituents who are PSAC members, but also to the constituents who are not PSAC members, who, as I mentioned in the last segment, uh, you know, many of whom, nearly half of whom have said they haven't seen a raise in the last 12 months. And who are those folks less likely, according to our own data? And if anybody wants to know or wants to find this data, they can do so at angusreed.org because we make all of our data perfectly and, and publicly available to everybody. 
who is less likely to say that they they haven't had a raise in the last year? It's service workers. It's restaurant workers. It's hospitality workers. It's drivers. It's people who are most likely to be lower household income. So you can't say on one hand that you're on the side as a government of working people. And then on the other hand, uh, be in a situation where you're seen to be catering to a segment of working Canadians, PSAC members, who in the eyes of millions of other Canadians seem to have a, a slightly better deal, at least around job security and working conditions. Look, if you work in the private sector at a white collar level or at a professional level, there's more money for you, but maybe less job security. If you work at a lower level, there is neither job security nor a particularly good wage, especially against the backdrop of a cost of living crisis. Uh, Government sector workers at this stage asking for 13 percent or 20 percent, they may have a case. And I'm not here to adjudicate that case. But there will be millions of Canadians, many, many Canadians who say, sorry, you're asking for how much? And I haven't had a raise at all. I've had 0% in the last 12 months. So again, it really comes down to whether those workers see the PSAC members as being sort of at the vanguard of this push towards better pay and better conditions, which then in theory lifts all boats, or whether they look at these demands and say, relative to what's happening in my life these days, it's it's just not in line with what my reality is. Yeah, it felt like this, not that it snuck up, we knew the day was coming, but it feels like this could morph into something far bigger, that there's a lot, there's a lot of different narratives at play in this one strike, depending on how long it lasts. And from a political perspective, the sooner this thing is settled, the better for this federal government, the better for the Justin Trudeau government, which is already fighting several battles on fronts around Jamaican luxury vacations with Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation donors and dealing with the um, with the fact that an, an ethics commissioner that is also the sister-in-law of a cabinet minister who, who just, just resigned. Yeah, she stepped out today. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot there's going just, on. There's a lot, precisely, there's a lot going on. And this is, this is not one more thing if if you are an advisor in the PMO this is this is one more thing that you don't want to lose the narrative on that you don't want to lose the thread on so my gut and i could be entirely wrong tells me that this thing will be resolved sooner than later because there is absolutely zero political upside for seeing this dragged out. Right. And PSAC gets to make its point that it's willing to go to the wall for its membership. The government's willing to say, listen, we uh, we took a hard line and we found a compromise. And if it's short, everyone wins. If it's long, it's a different story. It gets tricky. It gets messy. It gets ugly, which are not any of the things that this we're not supposed to call it a coalition, but these partners and the confidence and supply agreement, the NDP and the Liberal Party uh, really want to deal with or or sustain over a long period of time. It doesn't work for either of them. And as I mentioned, it's also tricky for the conservatives. So everybody has something to lose on this one. The longer it lasts. Well, Shachi Curl, as always, thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about remote work because this is a, the PSAC strike is really interesting 
on this facet because while wages are a big part of this, one of the things they've been fighting about now for a while, uh, the union and the treasury board, is this whole idea of remote and hybrid work arrangements. It's been a big issue on the table. Essentially what it boils down to is the union saying, listen, we need to we need to sort of formalize this and we need rules that we agree to because it's important to our membership that there be some flexibility here. Meanwhile, Treasury Board, like many employers, is saying, listen, it's up to us. It's up to management to decide where you work and when. Um, so and part of the problem here is that back in late 2022, they did, in fact, mandate many people back to work at least two or three days a week with little room for teams or departments to opt for less time on site, even if it made sense. So here are what some people on the picket lines had to say today about that. The fact that they're mandating us going back to work two days a week just doesn't make sense. I still believe that the pandemic is not over. Um, going to work is risking getting sick. I feel like working at home, you are still completing your day-to-day tasks. So this is not a fight for the public servants only. This is a fight for respect and recognition of all workers across the country. There you have it. That's what they think on the front lines of this strike. Now, strangely enough, of course, you notice they were all out, right? They to, to they had to go pick it, even if they were working remotely. Part of the sort of oddity of this whole thing, and my next guest, Alexander Samuel, a regular on the show, points this out, is that in order to be on strike, they actually had to leave home and go out and pick it, uh, which, is, which was an interesting twist in all this. And as I mentioned, Alexandra Samuel is an authority on remote work in the digital workplace. She's author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. And uh, she joins us now. Alexandra, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. This, for, the, for someone who pays a lot of attention and has paid a lot of attention over many years to this whole idea of remote and flexible work arrangements, this is an interesting labor fight because for the first time in my memory, this is one of the issues at the center of this battle with a very big union and the federal government. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I've literally been waiting for this um, conflict for 27 years. In 1996, oh. I tried to convince my dissertation committee to let me write a dissertation about how the internet was going to change the nature of the labor movement. And I was only a little ahead of schedule. Um, yeah, a quarter century, yes. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's funny because I, I worked actually with, with a number of federal government departments in the late 90s t- looking at you know the, the impact the digital transformation was potentially going to have on how service delivery would work in, in Canada and with other governments around the world. And you know, that's really how long we've been having this conversation. That's how long... The labor movement has been thinking about, um, and in some cases not thinking about, how to embrace digital tools. That's how long the government has been talking about transforming its model of service delivery to align with a digital world. But the truth is that change is hard, change is slow, and it's only because we had this kind of crazy um, shock in the form of a global pandemic that we finally accelerated the timeline and kind of caught up to what people in the labor movement recognized needed to happen in the structure of work to what people, many people in government realized was possible in terms of digital service delivery. Um, And yet here we are, despite having already gone through the gauntlet of change, arguing about whether that change is is possible. I, I guess part of the issue here, if you look at what's at stake or what they're fighting over is control, right? Is who gets to decide what a flexible what is flexible and what a flexible work arrangement looks like? I think it's partly about control. 
Um, but I, but I think it's a contr- about control at a much more fundamental level, which is that, you know, part of the discomfort around remote and hybrid work in general, um, a big part of it comes from the fact that our models of work, our models of management, our whole kind of mental map of how workplaces work is really based on a model that emerged out of the industrial revolution. When the job of a manager was to make sure that you were getting the most out of your assembly line, getting the most out of your, you know, line of women weaving at the loom by making sure they were standing there at the equipment all day. And, you know, that, that made some sense perhaps in 1862, (laughs) But um, it's not really how work gets done in, in the vast majority of jobs now, right? And certainly in white-collar jobs um, in, in, the, in the federal government, I mean, we all know we've all had encounters with one branch or one office one day that are terrific and another day that are not so terrific. And all of us as employees have had days where we're fabulous, days where we're not so fabulous. Um, And yet we manage as if the role of the manager is to, like, extract a a predictable amount of value from each employee. That's not how we work. Um, And when we're focused on controlling our employees rather than supporting them, coaching them, clearing hurdles for them, clearing bottlenecks for them, we are going into the employee-employer relationship in a way that is not only counterproductive in an era of remote work where people have shown remarkable capacity to get their work done independently, but but we're actually undermining our ability to work effectively as a team. Given your background and the fact that you've spoken to federal government agencies about this, have you been surprised? at, at I mean, I didn't find it surprising that it's taken that very big ship a long time to turn around on this one, considering uh, what's at stake. But does it surprise you that they've kind of run into a bit of a log jam when it comes to trying to figure out language around, even language mm-hmm. within a contract negotiation over what remote work should and could look like? You know, I, I think that um, the, the challenge of, of navigating remote work in a unionized environment is something that's come up in, for me with a number of employers I've spoken with over the past few years. You know, any um, employer who's trying to figure out a hybrid work strategy in the context of a, of a unionized workplace has to reckon on dealing with the union over some of that. But I have to say, in this case, I, I do think the feds kind of bought themselves a world of trouble with the way that they approached the hybrid workplace um, policy, because, you know, it's funny, I, I actually had, had already been booked to speak with a number of federal government um, departments before the policy came down, and I'd been in touch with, with quite a few people in the federal civil service talking about, okay, help us figure this out. Like, how are we going to figure out what hybrid work, work needs to look like in our department, in our team, in this kind of service operation? Because there was a very intuitive recognition at the professional level, at the frontline level, at the manager level, that the right approach to hybrid was going to depend on what your department's work was, what your team's work was. And this policy came down that stripped away so much of the latitude and kind of reframed the whole approach to hybrid work away from, hey, we're here, we're all going to figure this out to, you know, here is the rule, work it out, people. Um, And I I think it just set us on a very adversarial path that didn't have to be um, the way this unfolded and, and where, you know, frankly, what could and should have been resolved at the kind of departmental and team policy level is now a bargaining table issue.
Uh, it was interesting. You pointed this out in in a LinkedIn post, uh, Alexander, that I found really interesting about this idea that PSAC, PSAC also had the opportunity here to kind of reimagine what high, what a hybrid work environment could look like, and instead demanded that everyone show up and pick it. So there's a bit of an irony going on there that you thought was a bit strange. It is. It's a bit of a heartbreaker. And I mean, they have this very sweet on their website. I went and looked, you know, well, what, is, what have they got for people who want to, you know, participate in the strike action virtually? And, you know, there's some, you know, images to put on your, your social media profiles. But, you know, if you really want to convince Canadians, if you want to convince the employer here at the bargaining table that, um, hybrid work is real work that you could make a real effort and a real impact without showing up at the office, then like live that message with the way you approach a strike action, particularly, you know, frankly, given that many um, downtown employers are also not back to the office. I mean, how many people are really going to encounter uh, a picket line uh, in a downtown office building compared to how many people might see a Facebook post from a civil servant who's sharing their experience of why they are on strike or who decides to um, watch a YouTube video or join in on a live uh, Instagram chat. I mean, there's so many opportunities for um, civil servants to be connecting directly with Canadians in ways that really underline our ability to um, connect with one another online, that really underline the ability to deliver true national digital first service um, which is, after all, a key part of the message of why it makes sense to allow more flexibility for remote work arrangements. And so, you know, for, it's just so kind of painful to see the union um, require the same kind of in-person only work that is the very subject of their complaint. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, things do move slowly. <laughs> I mean, I worked in mm-hmm. Ottawa for quite a while. This is, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the unions are big and, and slow, and so is the federal government itself. Sure. What do you look at? I mean, you said earlier that you've been waiting for this for 27 years, for this for this day, for this fight, <laughs> you because you so talked old. about this. No, well, not at all. I, I, trust me, I, I, I'm older than that. Um, but, but what do you think the impact could be if there is some sort of agreement here? And one feels like the federal government may have a little more flexibility on this remote mm-hmm. work aspect than they do mm-hmm. on giving them all their wage mm-hmm. demands. And, yeah. and, and you know, you do save money by, by being flexible on, on work arrangements as well. Mm-hmm. At least your workers don't have to spend as much. Uh, what would you like to see come from this? And what kind of impact could it have broadly if one of the biggest unions in the country mm-hmm. uh, or one of the biggest worker groups in the country gets a, you know, signed deal on this? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I think we're honestly in the in, in the territory of not only setting precedent for Canadian employees and employers, but, but really globally. Um, you know, Canada has always, I think, had more to gain from embracing hybrid work than just about any country on Earth, partly because we have, gosh, we have a lot of elbow room. And if we didn't all have to get to the office every day, there are a lot of places we could live in this country. Um, and so, and of course, it also really helps that, you know, we have a significant, um, you know, exposure to the U.S. market that provides opportunities for us if we really make people able to work effectively online. So there's there's all sorts of policy reasons that the feds should want to lead on on hybrid work and really embrace it as opposed to fighting it. And And so I think, you know, this, as you say, Ben, like this is actually this should be the easiest thing at the bargaining table. It's hard to come up with. Look, I mean, inflation is tough and it's going to be hard to keep up with inflation. Although, you know, I continue to think that that is is what all employers should be aspiring to do. Um, 
but there's a lot of evidence out there that employees are very happy to actually have more flexibility in return for a little less compensation. And there's also now a lot of evidence that people can be extremely effective when working remotely. So, you know, to my mind, particularly as somebody who's, you know, I grew up in Ontario, but I'm, I'm now based, I've been in Vancouver for more than 20 years now. And Ottawa feels awfully far away. It really does. And seeing um, the civil service move to a model where um, there are some basic parameters for remote work that perhaps emerge from the bargaining table, um, you know, parameters that I think tie remote flexibility to the specific characteristics of a job. Does it need to be on site? How much of the time do you spend working with other people in a, in a department, you know, where it might be useful to be in person? How much time do you need to be available on site for um, the public to be able to see you in person? But if that's not a big part of your job, if there's no intrinsic reason for you to be on site, um, then maybe it isn't the job of the bargaining table or the manager to say that there is a minimum number of days in the office that are going to work for everybody. And maybe instead we can arrive at a broad framework that focuses not only on setting minimum expectations um, for on-site work in those jobs where it's really necessary, but that actually sets some expectations for fairness in how flexibility is provided, um, and, and that just as important, approaches hybrid work not as something to be managed or limited or controlled so that we can get everybody back into the office, but rather as an opportunity for us to evolve how we deliver services and how we do work in, in a very large country for a very eclectic group of Canadians, um, so that we take this transition, you know, which, which we do have some time around. It's not like COVID where it's all happening in a week. There's time for us to think hybrid through. And, and we can take that as an opportunity to coach managers in how to manage hybrid teams effectively, to coach civil servants on how to manage online communication so that they're not working evenings and weekends because they have so many meetings during the day. But until we've offered some of that coaching and support and training to actually um, make hybrid its, its kind of best case scenario. And until we have embraced a policy that recognizes that there probably isn't a one size fits all rule that is going to work across an organization as large and, and diverse as the federal government. Um, I'm afraid we probably are going to need the bargaining table to um, pull us back towards a more moderate approach. Well, Alexandra, thanks so much for your time tonight. When we see a deal, if and when we see a deal, I suspect we will in the not-too-distant future, we'll have to break down what the flexible work arrangement part of it is again. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Well, it's great to talk about Canadian movies tonight. Let's do that. It is National Canadian Movie Day. I've been asking you about some of your favorite Canadian movies of all time, one 877 9898 is the text line, one 9898 Of course, I grew up in Montreal. I speak French, so I got sort of a double dose of great movies through the sort of 70s and 80s into the 90s and beyond. Canadian movies have come a long way. There are so many good Canadian movies out there, mostly smaller productions, right? We're not talking about big, huge, well, other than other than uh, James Cameron movies, but big, huge uh, blockbuster-type movies, but really great little stories. 
I kind of like what the British make, right? And and lots of American movies as well. Uh, but when I think back to growing up, you know, some of the movies that the first Canadian movie that I remember really well was Meatballs because it took place in an actual summer camp. They actually shot it in a summer camp uh, in Halliburton in Ontario. When campers were there, you'd never get away with that today. Um, but they shot it in August of 1978 with campers there because they were, you know, inexpensive extras. Um, one of my favorite movies as well uh, was, was Meatballs with Bill Murray and Chris Makepeace and so on. And uh, The Outside Chance of Maximilian Glick, that's a Manitoba movie, another really good one. And what both my next guests have in common is that they appeared in those movies. Uh, one, as a casting director for Canada in Meatballs and as a character as well. The other, uh, as Sarah Glick in The Outside Chance of Maximilian Glick. But here, a reminder of Meatballs in 1979. I'm your head counselor. Hoping to make your summer camp experience the best available in this price range. For one summer, the parents of 300 children... You must be the short, depressed kid that we ordered. Come on inside, Frankenstein. I'll buy a cocktail. ...are putting their faith... These are the camp rules. Be in here if you want to check these out a little bit later. ...in one man. Let the game begin! Yeah, Bill Murray, right? You can't, you can't beat Bill Murray. I think I must have been eight when I saw that. I just thought it was remarkable. I, of course, went to summer camp like lots of kids growing up in Quebec did or, or if they were lucky um so yeah jack blum was co-casting director for meatballs he also acted in the movie uh and uh sharon quarter played sarah glick in the outside chance of maximilian glick now they are partners in life and partners in work where they've spent years championing canadian movies uh, championing rather first through an organization called real canada r -E, e l canada that promotes the diversity of canadian film and together 10 years ago they also established something called national canadian Canadian Film Day. And this is the 10th anniversary, April 19th. There are screenings of Canadian movies right across this country and right around the world from Stockholm to Jakarta, Johannesburg to Buenos Aires, and Jack Blum and Sharon Corder join me now. Thank you both. Our pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Thanks for having us. You know, I was I was thinking back to my first experiences with Canadian films, and Jack, you'll appreciate this because you were in the movie. I think Meatballs was the first Canadian film that I watched and thought, "Oh my God, this is a great movie," and never realized it was Canadian until much later. When, you know, when you start to pay attention to these things, there's a lot to celebrate about Canadian film going back over the decades. Absolutely, and Absolutely. thank you for a little shout out to Meatballs. But there are many, many great Canadian movies, and it's our great privilege to kind of get them in front of Canadians so they can actually enjoy them. And realize that uh, they're Canadian, as you didn't. Yes. So that happens all the time. It does. It does. Tell me a bit about yeah. where this day, this day began 10 years ago. What was the impetus to, to sort of have a day specifically devoted to celebrating Canadian film? Well, it started uh, Real Canada, and we had started our organization going into high schools to because we wanted to turn kids on to what's out there. One year, we looked around and we noticed that we happened to have eight schools across the country because we, we do it in all the provinces. And we noticed, oh, there are eight schools on this day. Well, it's National Canadian Film Day. It was a joke. It was it, literally it, a joke. Literally <laughs> a joke. And then that joke grew in Jack's mind. And uh, <laughs> men sometimes really like a joke to keep going on and on and on. And uh, here we are. And that first year... 2014, we had 70 screenings across the country, and we thought, wow, that's, Ooh, that's, that's a lot. That's really big. 
And then this year, 1,500 screenings across the country uh, in every every corner of the country and 115 around the world in 45 different countries. That's a lot of screenings. Where are these taking place and, and what are you hoping to highlight? They're, they're taking place everywhere, Ben, like literally everywhere. And sometimes we find that it's too hard to even explain it because it's in all the big cities, of course. Film festivals, cinemas, libraries, legion halls, military bases, bases retirement homes. Schools. Schools, just every, wherever you can show a film, somebody is showing a Canadian film today. And that's just the live screenings, because the broadcasters and streaming services are also offering Canadian film today. There's no excuse. You can watch a Canadian <laughs> film uh, wherever you are. And and this has become an international thing too, which is another which is another big step from sort of the joke of National Canadian Film Day. Here we are, ten years later, and and these films are being shown around the world now. Whereabouts? In International Canadian Film Day, yes. Iceland, Peru, lots in South America this year. Um, yeah, Latin America has um, quite a few. France, Indonesia, South Carolina. It, um... it began yes in Argentina. So Chandler Levac, who just directed I Like Movies, wonderful, mm -hmm. just won a CSA. A great film to go uh, see. They're screening that in Buenos Aires, and they're bringing her down for National Canadian Film Day for the screening. And uh, in South Carolina, there's a university that goes a little nutty on National Canadian Film Day, and they're bringing Tracy Deer down to show uh, her wonderful feature, uh, Beans. Wow. I have to just pause on South Carolina because they really do it up. They'll be showing features plus a bunch of shorts for elementary school kids that they're bringing onto the campus. They deck out the whole cafeteria with Canadian foods. We're not sure what that is besides poutine, but they have got a whole menu. When you look at Canadian film in general, I mean, what do you think it is about Canadian films that, that attract audiences from all over the place? Because for a long time, they were kind of, if you look back at the movies that did so well, and I, I love them all in the late 70s and 80s, they were often sort of takeoffs of American movies. No offense to Porky's, but, you know, they were kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and it's and a all classic. Sudden, it's like, it is a classic, at least at the box office. It was a classic. Yeah. And yet it's evolved into something quite distinct. What do you think that is? So what's happened in the last number of years is that we're hearing more and more of, from all of the voices in Canada. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of what's happening in Indigenous film, which just mm -hmm. exploded. There's so much beautiful work being done, just great films. And at the CSAs just last week, beautiful film Brother won tons of CSAs. It's a yes. gorgeous film. I encourage everyone to go out and see it. Rice Boy from Rice uh, Boy Sleeps, Sleeps out, from out your way. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's gorgeous. There are so many different voices that we're getting to hear from. We're getting to hear from the people who look like our neighbors. And I don't think that happens in all countries quite as thoroughly as it's happening here. What are some of the movies that people from other places have really glommed on to? Or what are the ones that really still really resonate in high schools, for instance? Because I'm sure it might come as a bit of a surprise to some people. Well, right now what we're finding, so it's two different questions, I would say. So internationally, there's an enormous interest in the Indigenous films. Mm -hmm. So that, that this year, really... Buffy, the, doc, the new documentary by Madison Thomas, uh, Buffy St. Marie Carry It On is a very, very popular choice around the world and in Canada. And last year there were, every year we get lots of requests that Tracy Deer's Beans is still popular, was very popular. Uh, Dennis Goulet's Night Raider is very popular. So everybody's interested in that because it's... Uh, it's of the moment. It's, yeah. there, there's an enormous concern about those issues. And our comedies travel very well. I'll tell you what the kids tell us they like. 
they like Canadian films because they say they seem more real to them. That kind of blows their minds because they're used to big CGI movies with all kinds of billions of bodies, you know, falling through the air and being blown up. And we don't we're not doing that. Many of them have not seen a movie that's just about people and they like them. Yeah, it's more like what they know around them. It's all about seeing yourself on screen, seeing experiences that you know and your reality reflected on screen. It validates you, makes you feel like you exist. And here in Canada, sometimes we have a hard time with that because there's so much noise that comes from south of the border that it's people are very excited when they see that great films are being made about them or people like them. When we first started showing these films, we talked a lot about like films are like dreams. And the idea that you would every night go to sleep and you would dream something inside your neighbor's mind and not yours is kind of weird. It's kind of disorienting. So the idea that we have our very own dreams doesn't mean we can't also watch their dreams. They're great. But the idea that you'll sit down and look at something that reflects you and the people around you, I think is kind of good for our mental health. Sharon Corder and Jack Blum are with us this half hour. They are the co-founders of National Canadian Film Day. That is today. There are screenings going on right across the country and around the world this year, as far abroad as Peru and Indonesia, down through the state. South Carolina has a big day today to celebrate Canadian film and food. We were trying to figure out what that was. Uh, and this is the age-old question. You've both been in this business for a very long time. What would you say the state is these days of Canadian film? I mean, you know, it's always hard to get attention within the big screen, of course. Uh, you mentioned all those blockbusters earlier but streaming has made a bit of a difference too where are we at now right now with the, in the canadian film industry what can we do to to make it better the films are getting better there's yeah. more talented filmmakers they're coming from more interesting places in canada more interesting communities it's harder and harder to get them in front of audiences because even though streaming and the internet makes everything available to everyone it makes everything available so there's just so much more traffic and so much more noise so i think it's the best of times and the worst of times the the work is getting better and better and better and we have to work harder to make sure that canadian audiences get to see canadian films i think we're sitting in a scotia bank and we're walking by past john wick and yes. John Wick's budget is just unimaginable in this country. And so just the advertising budget that you've got advertising John Wick. So we all know John Wick is happening. But do we all know that brother is on? It's just hard to make it's that much to, noise. Yeah. So one of the reasons behind National Canadian Film Day is to kind of create or start to create a bit of an alternative distribution system so that kind of we can sneak by all that advertising and get straight to the folks. And it's very gratifying to see how much the folks really like the stories. Yeah. I mean, there's an old saying in, in any media, whether it be what I do or what you do, is that if, if if people like it, the more they see it, you're in a good spot. And I think sometimes with Canadian films, the more people get to know them. I remember being in France when Jésus de Montréal, uh, Jésus de Montréal won, the, won the Cannes Film Festival and so on. Right. And, and just how much buzz there was around some Canadian movies. When they see them, they like them. It's getting in front, getting them in front of people. We often have, uh, we ask kids, what's your opinion of Canadian films before they've seen them? They go, ah, you know, I don't, I don't think they're very good. Well, why do you think that? Well, I don't know. I, do, I think I heard that. I don't know, you know. And then we show them, especially if you can show them two, three, and they go, oh, that's what a Canadian film is. Oh, that's great. And in Canada, let's face it, we do like to put ourselves down a little bit. 
So this all started off as 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 a joke, National Canadian Film Day, and here we are, ten yes. years later, and it feels like anything but, to be honest. Thank you. It does today feel like anything but. It, it's really you, you can't imagine what it's like after the months that we've been spending to actually sit here and imagine all of those screenings and all of those people watching Canadian films. And I have to say, we've got the we've got the involvement of so many great filmmakers coming out to present screenings, sending pre-recorded material to faraway places. Like it's, it's great. I mean, they, it's, they it's, really participate. Yeah, they really do. It's not just Jack and me here. Like yeah, at all. I know. I, I, you know, partners and work partners in life, the two of you, I have to, you know, you knew I was going to put you both on the spot with your, if you have no, to we recommend did not. one Canadian movie right now, what would it be? So listeners will have one. They could say, I think I'll watch a Canadian movie tonight. What would you recommend? Yeah. Normally, Ben, we absolutely refuse to answer that. But this year I'm going to. Yes. And the reason I'm going to is because we're honoring Gordon Pinsent. Oh, and Pinsent. he yeah. just passed. Mm -hmm. And his work is so important and it's so great. And just by coincidence, the film that I think is really a masterpiece, John and the Misses, and many people consider it his, his kind of crowning achievement. He wrote, he produced, he directed, he stars in it. He won the Best Actor Performance Genie at the time. John and the Misses from 1987. And if you go to canfilmday.ca, you can get onto our platform and stream it for free. So this year, I really don't mind my favorite for this National Canadian Film Day, John and the Misses by Gordon Pinson. And I'll step in to say Blood Quantum, uh, Jeff Barnaby also passed away this year. He left us way too soon. And without finishing the work I think he was put here to do. So we're honoring him with uh, a free screening of Blood Quantum. It's uh, a, an indigenous zombie movie. Uh, it, there is some violence. So if that's not your thing, don't go near it. But it's a great movie. And again, there's also some good content about Jeff and a little bit about who he is. And, and, and I'll just, as a, as a nod to you, Jack, I'll throw in that I did find Hockey Night on, on Prime recently, Megan Follows, um, uh, Rick Moranis are in that movie. You co-wrote that. I'll throw that one out there as this year's Sleeper, because that's a great movie. It goes back to 85, but what a great film. Thank you both so much for, for sharing the details. Lovely about to Canadian chat with film you, Ben. Day. Thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Um, we're going to talk about the Peace Act strike again, but we're not going to go delve into all the ins and outs of it. We're going to talk to Tristan Hopper about it. Um, as you know, that um, you know the largest public service union walked out uh, nearly 24 hours ago now. Uh, they're fighting over wages. They're fighting over remote work and other stuff. Um, they want a 13.5% wage increase over three years. This goes back a bit. They've been negotiating now for a couple of years. So this goes back to 2021. 9% is apparently what the feds have on the table. This uh, puts the federal government in kind of a tough spot. People have been unhappy with their federal services of late. We think about airports and passports and immigration and all sorts of backlogs. And now, you know, the public service has walked out on them, demanding more money. And of course, a lot of people aren't in such a generous mood these days, considering, you know, not all of us got to work at home during the pandemic. Not all of us have a great pension like public servants do. So there's a bit of a not exactly a lot of public sympathy for the for the government or for PSAC on either side of this today. The the uh, the prime minister is trying to walk the line, though. Here he is today. Canadians have every right and expectation to see the services uh, that they expect delivered. Uh, we understand it's really important to respect labor rights and there's a labor disruption right now. It's the first day. What we are saying, what I'm saying right now is public servants, unions need to get back to the negotiating table right now. 
And uh, apparently bargaining teams are standing by. They're supposed to start speaking again. Uh, Global News went out and spoke to some of the picketers today about what was not just the wage issue, because that one's pretty straightforward, but also this whole idea of trying to, you know, codify remote work to some extent. Here's what they had to say. The fact that they're mandating us going back to work two days a week just doesn't make sense. I still believe that the pandemic is not over. Um, Going to work is risking getting sick. I feel like working at home, you are still completing your day-to-day tasks. So this is not a fight for the public servants only. This is a fight for respect and recognition of all workers across the country. Well, Tristan Hopper joins us now, a regular on the show, uh, columnist and reporter with the National Post. Tristan, how you been? Thanks. Oh, I've been great. Thank you. <laughs> you've, been, you've been tweeting away about this strike, so I wanted to ask you about it first. What do you make of it all? I was a little surprised that it got this far because it feels like neither side here has much to gain other than, you know, your usual labor contracts kind of stuff. But publicly, they, they both seem to be not much loved right now. No, 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 I, I, I would point out, and you sort of mentioned it earlier, but yeah, when you look at the 155,000 among those uh, affected by the strike, I mean, it's Passport Canada, Immigration and Refugee Canada, uh, parole officers. So all of these, when you just look at branches of government, people are not happy with. Um, it, it basically covers the whole gamut of them. But as some bureaucrats, and you know, I live in a government town, so I do know a, a fair number of not these specific bureaucrats, but bureaucrats generally. And they'll say, well, the reason passports suck is because of management. Uh, you know, I, I got to show up to work every day and, you know, be absolutely slogged with miserable people all day, and I'm dr- doing my best. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that, it, you know, it's not, they're not all parasites, uh, just taking our money and making unreasonable wage demands. Um, however, as you, um, as is my job during any of these, um, whenever there's a strike, you always go into the list of union demands, you know, in the media, because it's, yes. uh, you know, you'll, you'll see the head, sort of headlines. It's like the wages. I'm like, oh, okay, you got 13.5%. But you don't really see this in the private sector unions, but you will see it in the public sector unions. You got the wage demands, you got the, the hour demands. And then right at the end, there'll be a bunch of like just really nutty stuff. And, you know, that's always good for the story. And there is, uh, obviously, even in this case, there has been labor lawyers. I think there was even CBC coverage of this. Labor lawyers saying, yeah, coming out of a pandemic, um, not a lot of public goodwill. Kind of weird that they also tacked on all these other weird extras. Yeah, there, there were a couple in there. I'm trying to remember them because I read them as well. There was one about sort of being paid extra to work uh, outside of your normal work hours and so on. And I thought, yeah, listen, I, I get why you would put that. I mean, they are a union after all. They get dues. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes off your paycheck when you work for the government is your union dues, right? So they're expected to stand up for their membership. Yeah, you're supposed the membership. to show up in the negotiation making just outrageous, yeah. ridiculous claims. How well, of course. Are. You're also relying on public goodwill. So you do have union leaders going out there and saying, you know, we're fighting on behalf of all workers. And, you know, I think there's a fair amount of all workers who are looking at it and saying, well, you know, I don't work at a a job that, you know, pays $2.50 an hour extra after 4 p.m. or, you know, has a social justice fund on the side. And nor do I expect that. This this seems strange. So, yeah, the the wackier demands uh, were, uh, yeah, it was uh, they wanted – and not an insignificant chunk of money for a social justice fund, and they didn't really specify what that's going to be. So it's basically just a union slush fund for social justice causes. So that was going to be funded to the tune of one cent per hour for all of their employees. So 155,000 times how many hours you work per year times one penny. Uh, we're looking that seems at like a lot of million. money. 
That seems like a yeah. lot of money when you add it. I think I saw a movie like that once. The um, speaking of being, and, and you just tweeted something interesting. Well, you made speaking a Superman three reference, if nobody else. That's right. I I did. Okay, I did yeah. the Richard Pryor Superman three reference. That goes back a mighty long time, by the way. I'm glad you remember that, Tristan. Thanks for that. Um, speaking of 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 well, I mean, the Prime Minister had other things. To, I'm sure he'd rather be talking about labor negotiations now than talking about his latest trip to the tropics. Here, have a listen. This is about influence and power for the super rich. So why won't he answer? How much should he pay in accommodation per night at this luxurious villa? Mr. Speaker, our family have been good friends with this family for about 50 years. And as always, uh, we work with the Ethics Commissioner to make sure that all rules are followed. But if Mr. Speaker, the Leader of the Opposition, was truly concerned about affordability for Canadians, he would be voting to support our budget. Yeah, a bit of a hard turn from the Prime Minister there. Support my budget. I went away for Christmas and spent it at a luxurious resort in Ocho Rios in Jamaica. So just the Coles notes on this. Uh, the resort called the Prospect Estate is owned by Peter Green. The Greens are longtime friends of the Trudeaus, including uh, Justin's father, the former Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And apparently between... December 26th and January 4th, that's where he and the family went for a little Christmas getaway. Uh, it's not clear. I mean, read between the lines. It looks like the hosts paid for the accommodations. Of course, there's always money involved when the prime minister travels, about 160000 to go down there. And here we are again talking about, I mean, I, I don't get why the prime minister can't take vacations like, like normal people and not get everyone into trouble. Well, I Reggie have an explanation because yeah. he isn't a normal person. Um, True enough. So, I mean, this is one of the liabilities of being Justin Trudeau is he's never been a normal person uh, from birth. So, you know, if I can make the pro-Justin Trudeau case, uh, yeah, when I'm, my summer vacations are coming up, so there's friends I want to visit. So uh, there's one that lives in an acreage, and I'll camp in his yard. And, you know, I might get a free box of craft dinner out of that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they have any interest that, uh, you know, I could assist uh, through my media job. But it's pretty easy for me to visit my friends without having any conflict of interest. Uh, but if you are Justin Trudeau, I mean, legitimately, your closest friends are captains of industry and people with immense amounts of influence and their fingers in all kinds of federal pies. So, uh, yeah, he, he can't really visit his friends without getting into trouble. And add that on top of the fact that he really doesn't seem to care at all about whether he gets in trouble uh, on vacations. And, yeah, every time he leaves, um, you know, there's a shrine we, we pray to in the newsroom. Um, you know, waiting for Trudeau's next vacation because it's it's always yeah. it's just increasingly more over the top. It's like, well, I'm going to take you know a jet that somehow burns triple the amount of fossil fuels, and we're going to fly, fly fly around in the circumference of the Earth um, with like two evil billionaires, and they'll pay for the whole thing. <laughs> he was in. I noticed he was in Montana last week on private business. No one's quite figured. Out. I haven't seen anyone figure out what that was yet. So I'm waiting. But you're right. I mean, what, what shocked me about that? Uh, yeah, anybody who goes to mysterious place in Montana, it's never good. not a good thing. I love how you pray to the pray to the God. The thing that struck me the most, and it's because Radcan at Radio Canada had reported some people inside the Liberal Party saying, "Why does he do, do this?" Is that at the time he, they were deflecting questions about who had stayed in that really expensive hotel room for the Queen's funeral. And we all knew it was the Prime Minister. I was in London. I mean, we knew it was the Prime Minister who stayed in that expensive hotel room, but they were deflecting questions, denying it, not really saying much. And meanwhile, I was like, oh, by the way, I'm going to go away on a little holiday here. Maybe you can handle this mess when I get back. Yeah, we're going to Jamaica for eight days. We're staying on a really expensive resort. Uh, yeah, so I, I do think there there is a mental block there. Uh, I mean, I think if any of us, I don't know, we, maybe we could take a baby and just raise it like Justin Trudeau was raised and see how it acts when it comes to, you know, weird privileges like this. But yeah, it, this keeps happening 
all of these things where, you know, any normal person is saying, oh, this looks really bad, and it just happens anyway. I mean, the classic example uh, being the first Truth and Reconciliation Day that he brought in, and he just yes. flies off for an obvious surfing vacation in Tofino. Yeah, a great Everybody day to go surfing in Tofino. I, I can tell you we have, all of us, when I talk to other police leaders across the country, we've all seen an increase in calls related to mental health. There has been a, a post-pandemic uh, impact that I don't know that we fully understand, but it's manifesting itself in public spaces uh, across uh, the country. And I think we've gone as far down this dark road as we're prepared to go. That was Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld a while back talking about a spate of violence on public transit, transit and in other high traffic areas and cities across Canada. Uh, he says he's talked to his counterparts, as he mentioned, in other cities. It's difficult to know what's driving the violence. We've read about those and talked about those series of violent incidents in cities uh, across Ontario and BC and Alberta, including murders on public transit, some high profile uh, incidents as well. Uh, Tristan Hopper is with us from the National Post. He wrote a big article on this over the weekend that uh, was much talked about. Tristan, you really wanted to dig into this. You've been talking about it for a while. What did you set to sort of try to figure out here? Because there's perception and then there's stats and there seems to be a bit of a disconnect. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, if you look at just the raw numbers, and I've heard this argument, uh, what people will say, um, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, if you look at the trend lines, uh, yeah, crime was higher then. So if you look at just the murder rate, which is usually the most reliable crime indicator, um, it was proportionally higher in 1991. So you could say, well, you know, things are bad, but it's only bad as compared to, um, you know, the, the mid-2000s, which had the lowest crime rates basically in Canadian history. So, you know, if you look at the trend line, it's just kind of a straight line. Um, however, if you look within those, uh, yeah, overall murders are down as compared to not that long ago. Um, but then we have some crime trends that are happening that have never happened before. Um, so one of them, the most obvious, um, is the phenomenon of stranger attacks. Uh, this is just you're going about your business, not doing anything. Someone comes at you for no reason and plunges a knife into you in front of you. I mean, this is a daily occurrence in basically every Canadian major city. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's a poll I cite in that story, which um, they just took a random sample of people. And one out of every, I think, 20% say they feared for their safety. They've been in a situation. And uh, 5% said they had been assaulted in one of these random assaults. So, I mean, this is everywhere. Um, anybody who's riding public transit in a major city uh, who is going into a downtown core, particularly in B.C. Um, I mean, I think I mentioned the last time uh, I was on your show, Paul Schmidt, uh, being stabbed to death in downtown Vancouver. I mean, he was yes, in a situation yeah. that I'm quite familiar with. Uh, you're just mm -hmm. out with the family. And then you've got someone in your face who is just completely unhinged, unpredictable, and you're, you're in a fight-or-flight scenario. And fortunately, yeah. none of mine ended with a blade being produced. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think I think any of us who've been in a downtown. I mean, I live in downtown where you are. We're in the same city. I mean, I'm in downtown Victoria, and and, and you know, it's it's not, you know, at all. You, you, it's different. Things have changed a little bit. You looked into this. One of the things that's been talked about a lot is bail, right? Is the bail system, yeah. and you looked into it a bit too because it's a bit a contentious one about how exactly bail has changed and how it could be changed again. And yeah, this uh, this was an interesting sort of uh, aspect because you hear, well, bail. Something's wrong with bail. You know, we gotta. Uh, we got to keep people when they're charged. We got to keep them in, in jail, you know, before their trial. Um, and then, I mean, that's always been the exception. I mean, if you're charged with a crime, you're usually just released um, and then given a court date. Um, it's you have to essentially be a murderer um, to be kept in jail until 
um, you, your court date. Uh, however, what's changed, and you could see how this could quickly yield a you know phenomenon of random attacks all over the place, is that there uh, is basically no measure anymore to enforce bail conditions or parole conditions. So it used to be eh, you're charged with sexual assault, um, innocent until proven guilty. But until the trial date, you have some conditions. Stay out of this area, um, you know, no contact with the victim. And then if you're caught violating that, um, 30 days in jail, and then, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. Um, so there was consequences uh, for bail conditions. And what they're saying now, as a result of some of these you know, recent bail reforms, um, is that you're caught violating the conditions of your bail, and then you're just given bail again a few hours later. So we're, we've seen this in action, some pretty egregious cases out of Vancouver. Someone has caught shoplifting, someone assaults a random stranger, and they're back on the street in a few hours. That didn't used to happen. You would just be in jail for at least 30 days. And then maybe you get out and you know, violate the conditions of your bail again. But, but that's kind of the root of the catch-and-release justice problem. You can't enforce um, bail conditions. And we have a very, very, very small proportion of criminals who have figured that out and are just kind of doing what they want uh, until eventually they kill someone and then they, you know they can't get bail yeah i mean we, we, you talked about you you mentioned a letter that was written by an amalgam amalgam of uh, bc mayors calling them prolific offenders i think the number you quoted was two hundred prolific offenders they even use yeah, yeah. Two, super 204 responsible for nearly 12,000 negative police contacts. So a small group of people responsible for a great number of these incidents. Yeah, so this is a phenomenon. So, I mean, criminologists have been arguing with me and saying, well, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. This isn't you just jail the bad guys. I'm like, yes, generally, yes. But we have marked, put ourselves into a situation in which, yes, it is jail the bad guys. Uh, we can jail these 200, and then we can talk about the root causes of crime. And, uh, you know, whether bail, uh, you know, just causes recidivist behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But for the time being, we have a very small number of people who are committing all of the crimes and eventually are doing serious harm to innocent people. And there is no mechanism to do it. And everyone at the sharp end of the justice system is saying the same thing. You know, police associations, um, you know, any, any number of sort of lawyers, you know, people who are in the bail courts, everybody knows this is a problem and you're seeing it. And you mentioned those BC mayors. That's interesting because this isn't, you know, just a bunch of right-wing lock them up mayors. These are some of the most left-wing politicians in Canada saying, yeah, yeah, I can't run a city if there's 12 guys committing all the crimes and there's nothing we can do about it. Tristan, uh, this is a complete, completely different question for you. Um, sure, yeah, that's favorite, right. favorite, favorite Canadian movie? Do you have one? It's, oh, you know, it's last, national... Well, yeah, number one, one's... because uh, the CanCon, you know, uh, yeah, can, they, they, it's not considered official CanCon for some reason. Martin Scorsese is not right. Canadian, but no. I mean, yeah, that's uh, it's it's extraordinarily Canadian. I mean, the band is mostly Canadian, especially Lee Van Helm. Uh, it yep. has some uh, Canadian artists at the height of their power. I mean, this is um, it's it's egregious that it's not considered Canadian content because yeah, that's the one movie that it's always good on a rewatch. Um, you know. It, it, fortunately, it doesn't come with a sense of smell. It looks like a very smelly movie, if you could be close to all that. Well, everyone's pretty sweaty. It's the best sweaty. movie ever made. We should take a lot of pride that it's so Canadian. Yes. I, I was reading earlier that Juno, someone mentioned Juno as being their favorite Canadian movie. I thought that has to be a Canadian movie. It was directed by a Canadian. The stars are Canadian. Nope. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, the key I mean, grip was probably Slovenian. So, no, yeah. you, not CanCon. Out it goes. No genie for you. Uh, Tristan, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, we were talking about the rise 
in, or at least the perception that our common areas, our communal areas in our cities are becoming less safe. Um, Tristan was mentioning a survey published last week by Leger uh, and the Association for Canadian Studies that found that two-thirds of Canadians believe violent crime is visibly worse than it was before the onset of the pandemic. Of those respondents, one-fifth said they had feared for their safety in the last six months. One in every 20 said they had personally been assaulted. And I'll tell you a story. I, I was out. I, I, I work downtown. I live in downtown Victoria. I walk around a lot. And, uh, you know, I mean, there, there is an issue, obviously, with, 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 with mental health and addiction and homelessness. A lot of these issues have collided. And what happened during the pandemic, especially in a government town like here, is that the downtown core is kind of emptied out a little bit, right? People stopped coming downtown. People weren't going out as much. Um, and then those who have nowhere else to go, those who call the streets home, um, they ended up taking up a lot. They were they were a far more visible part of, of the downtown mosaic, so to speak, than they had been in the past. And when you combine that with some other issues, uh, certainly mental health and addiction and all these really serious systemic issues we have in this country, um, you know, you do see it has changed. The vibe has changed. I know that's not a not a scientific word, but the vibe has changed a bit downtown. And you just see a lot more folks looking like they're really, really not having a good day. And you see, I mean, I had one, someone approach me once I was on the phone talking to my dad walking downtown, and the guy just started throwing punches. I mean, he connected on a few of them, but what are you supposed to do, right? You're not kind of like, he, he couldn't see me. He didn't know who I was. Nothing to do with me. He just sort of uttered a few words and started throwing punches. And you think, wow. Wow. Like, how do you solve that problem? Right. Um, and there are, you know, it, it leads to this idea about perception versus statistics. Can you believe your own eyes? You often do, right? I mean, you, you feel that things aren't as safe or things have changed in the places where you walk around. But I really wanted to know, having talking, talk to Tristan, I really wanted to find out some of the stats behind this because, you know, for us to solve this, there has to be both a perception approach, a political approach, but there also has to be an approach that's based in some form of reality, right? And so Dr. Tara Hodgkinson is an assistant professor of criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University, but she works in communities across North America and Australia. She works with communities themselves, with, with the politicians, those who run the show. She works with police forces. She works with a whole bunch of different people. So not only does she know what it knows, not only does she know what the stats looks like, she also knows what's happening on the ground. So I thought she'd be the perfect person to tackle this issue from a criminologist's point of view. And she joins me now, Dr. Hodgkinson. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has become a really hot button topic in the last uh, months in Canada. Perception is that violent crime is on the rise. People seem concerned about what they're seeing, certainly when it comes to random crime. I know that obviously you being not too far from Toronto, you've seen some of the uh, the impact of that where you are. From your perspective, what are we watching unfold here and how serious is it? Is it perception or is it truth? I think it's largely perception. And I'm, I make that statement based on the data. So if we look at the data across Canada, largely what we're seeing is that crime rates and specifically violent crime rates, because that's what we're talking about, is either stable or declining in most municipalities. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. I think Edmonton and Calgary are up a little bit in the last couple of years. But by and large, in the communities that we've seen sort of on the news consistently, like Vancouver and Toronto, violent rates are down. When we look at it, then, there does seem to be an increase in at least the reporting and awareness of a certain kind of crime, which is sort of random, random crime involving sort of strange situations where, you know, where, where random violence takes place. How do you how do you see that? 
I do think it is a bit more reporting than we've seen in the past. And so there's a way in which we have to recognize that those sort of random events sometimes aren't random, first uh, and foremost. But these incidents are also good media. They they make for good news because yeah. they're shocking to us. But it's hard for us then to combat some of the imagery we're seeing with, with the data and with the information that we have that just indicates that's overall not an increasing trend. So listeners know, I mean, this is not uh, ivory tower. You work directly with, with police forces. You work directly with communities that are impacted by all this stuff. You've done work with them on what, what happened to crime over the period of COVID, what's happened as we come out of it. Uh, when you look across the country, what picture are you seeing then? Because there is a perception, and I know it from where I am here in Victoria, if you speak to people in Vancouver or in Toronto, that public transit's become less safe, that certain, you know, communal spots have become less safe. There is this overriding perception that it's true. I think those spaces are being used differently than they were pre-COVID. I do think that we're seeing certain issues emerge um, and become more prevalent. We're seeing that around mental health. We're seeing that around drug use and addiction. We're seeing a lot of struggle around housing uh, and homelessness in communities. And so that sort of social disorder is much more visible than it was pre-COVID because issues have gotten worse around those kinds of root causes. But a lot of that, again, is social disorder and not necessarily violence. I think also, too, we're seeing a lot of people who have stepped out of their communities and out of their neighborhoods and are spending more time at home, more time away from those sort of communal spaces. And so there's a lot less community feel in those spaces and the ways in which that creates a feeling of safety in and of itself. Right. We, we're seeing, certainly seeing foot traffic in downtowns in many areas reduced pretty dramatically. I mean, it's coming back a little bit, but not much. Uh, yeah. Tell me a bit about Bill C-75, because this comes up all the time in the reporting, this idea that somehow bail has become a revolving door under this bill. What's your take? I think that there is a lot of work to be done in bail, and I'm not a bail scholar, unfortunately. I think it's taking a very harsh sort of crime and punishment approach to what is much I think it's much more a um, a root causes issues around health and and mental health and uh, community safety. I think that there are absolutely people who need more support in our communities. I don't think that harsher punishments are are going to help individuals who are already quite punished by, by our communities and by our society as is. I think that we can be engaging in much more meaningful prevention for these kinds of issues rather than putting additional strain onto our justice system and onto our court system that are already so heavily strained in these spaces and already struggling both financially and just in terms of people power. What are you hearing from police forces? Because really, they've had, you know, we've heard different different takes come out from different police organizations. What are you hearing from them about how what they need to try to, to at least solve the perception that's out there that that inner cities at least are becoming or public transit systems are becoming less safe? From the police services that I've worked with in Canada, I think that there are a number of them, especially at the front line, who want more preventative strategies. Policing has a recruitment crisis at the moment. It also has a retention crisis at the moment. These claims that we've seen in cities like Vancouver that somehow 100 more police officers in downtown is going to solve this issue. The police services literally can't hire that many people, let alone the cost and all the other issues associated with that. But they want to see a lot more of those preventative approaches and working with their community partners to engage in that kind of prevention. So that really is them saying to me, at least, and to other sort of practitioners, we don't need more police on this. We can't police our way out of these problems. We need mental health supports. We need addiction services. We need housing in this country. 
And those are provincial and government or federal government decisions that they don't have control over, but they are really feeling the fallout from, from the lack of funding into those resources. Yeah, and you mentioned, I mean, we all think of the many officers who've been killed over the last year or so and how devastating that has been. I mean, it's been a really tough time for policing, period. And yet, and here they are under the gun again, so to speak, uh, over this issue as well and what to do about it. Yeah, yeah, I think our police are struggling more than they ever have been. Um, And I think that's really because we have downloaded the responsibility of health and mental health and housing and, you know, all these structural issues onto police to clean up. Uh, And so they're just in a position of constant reaction rather than any kind of prevention. Tara Hodgkinson is an assistant professor of criminology at Wilfrid Laurier University. She works with communities and police forces right across North America, a rural and big city, uh, as well as in Australia on crime prevention, how to tackle exactly the kinds of issues that we're talking about tonight, which is this sense of, of that, that random attacks are on the rise, that our inner cities are becoming less safe, the transit systems are less safe, the communal areas that we share aren't what they used to be. Oh, you know, you talk a lot about about trying. I think most people want to see this problem solved long term. I mean, I think people are impatient and want some short term action. But when you look at what could work in the short and long term, where should we begin? So I, I talked already and I'll re- reiterate it. We need to be funding the key structural supports that ensure people have their needs, basic needs taken care of uh, in order to help them in terms of mental health, housing and, you know, basic income. We are struggling more broadly than we ever have been. We are dealing with probably the onset of a recession in the next couple of years, and people are struggling just to pay their bills. So I think there's lots of ways in which we need to be doing much more investment into those spaces. But at a local level, I think there's opportunities for us to see much more local capacity building and uh, neighborhood governance. And what that looks like is really engaging people with each other and engaging uh, stakeholders and community partners across the spectrum to one, get to know each other, but two, be willing to act on behalf each other. And within the crime prevention literature and within the community work that I've done and the crime prevention work that I've done sort of around the world, that's the most effective strategy is having individuals who not only know each other and are engaging with each other, but are willing to act on behalf of each other. Uh, And so that means people have to be spending time with each other and out uh, in our communities again, which I think post-COVID has been really difficult for some. It also means they have to be willing to um, spend that time and engage in their community in a meaningful way. And unfortunately, we haven't seen as much of that. We are often turning to things like police and and other social providers to say, well, this is a quick fix, you fix it. But of course, we know that police do not prevent crime. Uh, They've never prevented crime. Uh, There's there's minor studies that indicate if you put them in an area, we'll see a slight decline for the period that they're there. And then as soon as they leave, that effect goes away. But the capacity of people to act on behalf of each other, to provide guardianship, to really make a community in a neighborhood uh, engaging in and wonderful place to live and and you know really improving quality of life that's going to make the major difference at the local level are you surprised at all by that? Because we're seeing a backlash against criminologists, which is, you know, for a long time, there's been this espousal over or about, you know, needing the need for prevention, uh, mental health support, uh, home, you know, housing and so forth. And here we are, and because people are getting a little freaked out about what's happening on the street, at least what they're reading about, and perhaps what they're seeing. I mean, I've, I've noticed a difference on the streets where I live, too. I mean, there is a difference. Have you been surprised by the backlash? And what do you make of it? I am and I'm not. I think that there's been a backlash against experts for a long time. And there's been sort of a 
a narrative that we're liberal elites and somehow we're not affected by this and we're not at the same table and at the same streets that the folks who are critiquing us are. Of course we are. Of course, we're working with the stakeholders every day to make that change. And more and more of my colleagues are literally out on the street doing that work um, and collecting that information from the front line and, and from folks who are literally out there. It's hard to negate some of the imagery that folks are seeing and it's hard not to be afraid I completely understand that. You know, I've worked in some of the most difficult uh, neighborhoods across North America and Australia, areas that have some of the worst crime rates in the world. In those neighborhoods, people are scared as well. But what I have found from doing that work is when you connect them to each other, when you get them to engage on behalf of each other, that fear goes away. Uh, And their capacity to reduce crime, to, you know, create governance around the kinds of things that they want, to really build capacity around their people and around their kids and around the neighborhood more broadly is really, really impressive. I mean, we've worked in communities that are the size of 3000 people that have had 25 homicides a year. And we've seen them reduce that to one to zero, you know, really significant impacts simply because we connected people, we got them working on some of the strategies that work in crime prevention, and really had them working on behalf of each other. And I think while it's easy for us to be afraid, and it's easy for us to retreat, this is the time actually to spend more time with each other and to get out more than we ever have in the past. And the mistake we could make here, I would assume, is to to either get really hard line on this, or just throw tons of money at it, hoping it'll go away. I think the reaction is always tough on crime. And we know from the research and we know from history that that just doesn't work. And there's lots of, you know, folks out there trying to make comparisons and say that when we've been tough on crime, we've seen crime go down. No, that's that's not true. Uh, That's not consistent with any of the data. In fact, when we provide people with the supports that they need, especially around housing, basic income and around uh, mental health supports, that's when we see shifts. I guess part of the issue here is that this has been a long time coming. We've seen social uh, programs disintegrate over many, many, many years, and it's going to take some time to fix them. And what we're seeing is a result of it on our streets to some extent. Yes, it's taken us a long time to get here. Uh, and so it's not going to be an overnight fix. You know, there's it's a complex issue. And that, unfortunately, doesn't make good news. You know, folks aren't really comfortable with complexity and don't want to have those kinds of conversations. But I think if we can sit with that and if we can really uh, engage with each other and think about how we can work on these issues much more holistically, it might sound, you know, it might sound ideological or it might sound really sort of airy fairy. I actually think from everything we've seen in the research, that's that's where we make the changes is through those holistic and complex strategies. Well, Tara Hodgkinson, thank you so much for your point of view on this. Thanks so much, Ben. Police have been busy this week making arrests in a theft that has made international headlines because the crime was so unique. $18 million worth of maple syrup was stolen from a storage warehouse. Yeah, little Pete Seeger there, little Donna Friesen, teeing you all up for a story about maple syrup, of course. It's springtime. We talked about maple syrup last week as one of those great Canadian spring foods. But now let's talk about a different side of the maple syrup game, so to speak. Donna, of course, there, uh, that's 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now, that there was that great maple syrup heist in Quebec. 3,000 tons of the stuff was stolen from the strategic reserve in Quebec. Um, And, you know, that really shows what a valuable commodity it can be and the target of some nefarious stuff, right? I mean, we call it liquid gold uh, sometimes. It's among the 10 most adulterated foods globally, apparently, uh, because it's so 
it can be so expensive. So this kind of nefarious stuff leads its way into not just stealing this stuff, but also doctoring it because you can stretch it a little further if you mix other stuff into it. Um, so that's food fraud and theft. And of course, I mean, that there's a whole lot of problems with that beyond just uh, the obvious ones. I mean, you're not getting what you're paying for, right? Uh, but it's led to like smuggling and stuff like that. They call it, in one report called it prohibition style smuggling and sugar syrups labeled as maple syrup permeating the market. Um, now, I don't, I, honestly, I, I don't know if I've ever bought a bottle of maple syrup that wasn't the real thing. Who? How could you tell, right? I mean, it's hard to tell. But uh, how do you spot the bad stuff? How do you catch it, right? There must be ways of doing it. Um, so scientists at the University of Guelph are actually looking into this. They're looking into how to figure out how you can spot fraudulent maple syrup. I mean, it works in other places as well. Uh, but it turns out one of the best ways of doing this is to shine a light on it, quite literally shine a light on it. Joining me now, joining me now is Maria Corradini. She's an associate professor and the Arel Chair in Food Quality at the University of Guelph. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight, Maria. What an interesting topic. Oh, thank you for having me, Ben. So maple syrup, I mean, there is, not, there is nothing quite as, um, <laughs> quite as close to the Canadian soul as maple syrup, but it's valuable, right? I mean, we know it from the thefts. We know it from the, the reserves that we have. It is a valuable commodity. Well, it's $500 million in trade each year. So, yeah, it's certainly valuable. And I guess with value comes crime, as always. Um, tell me a bit about, about that, because I, I, I know it exists, but how much counterfeit or fraudulent maple syrup is out there and what is it? Well, we really don't know. You know, uh, the issue of fraudulent food expands to several commodities, including those that are very pricey, as, for example, maple syrup or specialty oils. Right. Specialty oils, we know that apparently 30% might have uh, or might be counterfeited. In the case of something similar to maple syrup, such as uh, honey's, it's around 10%. How much? Ten percent. Oh yeah, so so not not massive, but certainly not not insignificant. Exactly, and you know, you never know, you know, if the levels that are detected also uh, represent are properly communicated to the public. So we really don't know. We know that food fraud is a practice that has been going on for ages. You know, from you know since we are trading food. And of course, someone wants a little bit more for their money. But of course, that food fraud is not just limited on economic losses, but also in some cases, it might be, it might cause food safety issues. So, for right. example, yeah. when you adulterate milk, you know, you never know what the quality of the water has been has been added and it might cause, for example, a safety concern. Right. I spent a lot of time, I, I worked in Beijing for quite a while in, in the midst of their big food quality crisis. And there were sort of weekly stories about adulterated food and how, and just how much people lose confidence in the system when, when, when necessities become adulterated. I guess in maple syrup, it's a little bit different. We still see it. I mean, many homes will have maple syrup in them, but we still see it as more of a luxury item than anything else, I guess. What do they put in it? I mean, how is it adulterated? So normally, part of the syrup is substituted with syrups of lesser value. Such right. as, for example, corn syrup, beet syrup, rice syrup, cane uh, sugar syrup. And it's relatively difficult to detect, particularly, you know, for the consumer, because it's not something that you can see with your VRI. Right. Uh, so you need techniques in order to monitor that. And it doesn't. Uh, 
taste much. I mean, it doesn't taste much different, right? Because the maple syrup itself is quite powerful. Exactly. And, you know, most of the cases, the adulteration is not totality of the maple syrup, but, you know, a partial adulteration. It doesn't cause any kind of odd smell or taste. Right. So you think you're getting the real thing. Now, I know from having seen uh, with other things such as fish, and you mentioned this in your article, that uh, that there are methods such as DNA barcoding where you can sort of figure out what's in it. But that doesn't work for maple syrup, does it? Yeah, one of the of our collaborators, Dr. Rob Hanner, actually works a lot with DNA barcoding. And he's one of the proponents of using DNA barcoding in order to identify fraud in fish, which is quite prevalent. However, in the case of maple syrup, because of the process of producing maple syrup from the sap to the actual product embodies exposing it to high temperatures for prolonged times, and most of the DNA that is uh, that might be present from the tree itself, from the pollen and so forth, gets destroyed. So there is no DNA left in order for you to identify what's going on. So you have to go for another method. What we are proposing is a method based on the chemical composition. The chemical composition of the syrup itself, right? How does that work? It's, I read, I of course read your article. Uh, it's fluorescence, but but how? Explain how that works. So interestingly, many of the foods that we have at our disposition, they carry naturally compounds that glow in the dark, uh-huh. uh, which is basically fluorescent. And in the case of maple syrup and many other many many other foods, there is not just one compound that glow in the dark or fluorophore, like we call it, there are several fluorophores. And the amount of these fluorophores and the type of fluorophores change from one product to the other. So uh, provide, that provides us kind of a fluorescent fingerprint, as if it were, you know, the, the fingerprint that, that allows us to discern one view of human from another. Wow. So, so you're able to take to, 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 in other words, light up a bottle of maple syrup to see what's in it, how it lights up to see if it's adulterated or not. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. We've used an optical method, you know, with lights of different wavelengths. And we basically characterize that glow, that glorious glow that the maple syrup has. So uh, you did some experiments, experiments with this. What did you find? So we were able to, by adulterating on purpose multiple syrup that we knew that was pure, we managed to identify adulteration to very low levels. And this, I guess this is handy because you need something that's transportable and something that you can use quickly, right? Exactly. So any optical method that actually characterize several components and it can be applied along the food supply chain, not just, for example, in the moment of production, but also at retailing and even for the consumer. That's something that is desirable. And since there are other methods that can detect adulteration in maple syrup, but usually require either expensive equipment or a extensive amount of time in order to collect the data or analyze the data. Right. So, so in a perfect world, uh, where would the, where would you use this? Would you use it at? You mentioned you could use it right across the production line. I'm assuming that if you have a maple patch, you probably don't need it just yet. But at some point in 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 that whole production, uh, that the supply chain line, where do you think it would come in handy? Well, I think that in in several places, one of the things that we can say as well is that 
this glow can also be used in order to measure the quality of the maple syrup. Right. So, for example, if it was over-processed or exposed to higher temperatures uh, than the ones that you were aiming for, that also will reflect in the fluorescence fingerprint. So you, you could use it even at the production line in order to see if you have attained a particular quality or a particular processing step without just having to rely only on the concentration of sugars in the syrup. Oh, and so how far along are you with this? I, I realize that this is something that you're, it doesn't feel like you're at the beginning, but it doesn't feel like you're near the end yet. No, reversely, uh, we are not at the end because there are several parameters that actually influence the amount of chlorophores that you have in a sample. So we have to map them and build a significant database before this can be reliably implemented in the whole supply chain. So, uh, Maria, what next then? We are collecting additional data. Well, you know, hopefully this is something that the industry is willing to adopt and at least is going to use it in order to inform decisions. And it can be applied in the way that it is, for example, in a lab situation in order to characterize quality. So that information is already valuable and can be useful. Right, uh, uh, we are using AI also in order to de-scramble, you know, the contributors to these. You're uh, using artificial intelligence, really, really, yeah. for, for this as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and how so? The outcome is a fingerprint. So, you know, it has a lot of parameters that are susceptible to changes. So we can use AI in order to discriminate and classify a maple syrup in adulterated or not. Oh, and, and, and there, I guess there could be a time where you could literally just, I mean, like they do with DNA and, and barcoding and so on, you could just take a, take sample sizes of each of each product and and test to see if they are what they say they are. Yeah, and, you know, it doesn't require so much sample preparation. So depending on the syrup, if it is, for example, the amber type, it could even be applied through the container, you know, so you can illuminate, so it will not be invasive at all. And you will be able to verify authenticity or quality as you go. What's the reaction from the industry been like so far? Are they eager to embrace this or are they a bit skeptical or what, what, what have they said so far? Well, the industry is always very receptive to any kind of new methodology that allows them to ensure the quality and the authenticity of the supply chain, not only for this technology, but for any other technology. So I think that this will contribute to the arsenal that the industry have in order to identify misinterpretation and uh, mislabeling and uh, mishandling of products. Right. And, and you mentioned earlier, this isn't just reputation. This is not just a consumer issue. This is a reputational issue. And it's a, and it's a health issue, too. As you mentioned, some people have lower tolerances to sugars and shouldn't be eating things that uh, aren't what they say they are. Yeah, exactly. So there is always a safety component that has to be taken into consideration. For the maple syrup, it's not as pressing as, for example, for olive oil, for example, if it is substituted with peanut oil, you know, that might cause a severe allergic reaction. But of course, there are some food safety and health implications because of the rise of blood sugar that maple syrup in comparison to other sugars. Well, Maria, thank you so much for shedding some light on shedding some light on maple syrup. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben. 